Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Susanna, and welcome to the Codeco podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now, here's the show. Thanks. This is the Codeco podcast. Welcome to episode 13 for season one. And this episode was recorded on Thursday, the 22nd of June, 2023, for release on Thursday, July 6th, 2023. I am your COVID-recovered host, Drew Freeman, along with my dedicated and amazing co-host, Susanna Skyer-Gupta. Thanks, Drew. I am so glad to be back doing this together. In this episode, we're going to dive deeper into two of the announcements coming out of WWDC, Swift Data and Interactive Widgets. And we have as our guests tonight, fellow Codeco contributors, Dr. Mark Powell and Josh Steele. Mark is a mobile development team lead at NASA's JPL Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, as well as a tech editor and topics master here at Codeco. Josh works as a software engineer at the Applied Physics Laboratory of Johns Hopkins University. And here at Codeco, he is a co-author of Real World iOS by Tutorials, as well as a prolific video instructor and course creator teaching about core data, combine, and other topics. Mark, Josh, I feel so amazingly outclassed. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks, Drew. Thanks, Drew. Thanks for having us. We, we've got John Hopkins and JPL. I mean, we, we got some yeah, heavy right. hitters today. These guys are the real the, the, deal. The, the We're two, lucky. <laughs> the two PLs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right. So first of all, this is strange coming from me, but how is everybody today? Mark? Yeah, really good. Uh, the weather's fantastic in Southern California down here, and uh, been having a really great week at work. Uh, getting a lot of stuff done. No complaints here. Josh, how about you? Uh, the weather is miserable here on the west coast or in the east coast. Uh, it is r- rainy and and dreary, but we need it, so that's good. Um, but yeah, the week has been good. Uh, you know, having a good good summer. We've got some interns at work, which is always great. Uh, teaching them the latest and greatest of everything that's out there. And uh, yeah, it's uh, not too bad. You don't mind me asking, where on the East Coast are you, Josh? Maryland. Ah, okay. I'm based in Pittsburgh. We had a little bit okay. of, the, of the moisture, but not not dreariness. Yeah. So today we got two topics, which is Swift Data, which, oh my God, overdue. And <sighs> what's new in widgets, which... They've just reached beyond the pale on that one. So I think we're going to start with Swift Data. And obviously, we can't really talk about Swift Data without going back and hitting our old friend Core Data. So sure. who uses which one when and why? Yes. <laughs> um, the... The uh, there's multiple answers to that. I think um, one is I, I think you know core. You know I think the two things you heard during WWDC are uh, core data is dead. Long live core data. Um, <laughs> because uh, when Swift Data came out uh, and was announced, you just I mean even though it was all virtual or mostly virtual, uh, you felt this relief come over people to be like ah finally like you said it's it's way overdue. But uh, I see it very much as a we introduced Swift UI, but UI Kit is still hanging around, and it's gonna be a bit before we transition everything over. So there are gonna be people who are gonna be like, I'm not touching this for a while, um, partially because it is only uh, iOS 17 and above. You got to have the the new bits, the new shiny bits, to use it. Um, there are some things that cannot do yet or cannot do easily with the syntax that they have. Um, there are cases where you need to split the difference if you want to, uh, to match the current capabilities that you have with core data. So, um, yes, that is that the answer really is yes. Some people are going to use core data. Some people are going to jump into Swift data. Um, and some people are going to use it as a, a hybrid going forward as Swift data continues to evolve. Now, you've talked about hybrid. Now, there was a lot of the uh, the toll-free that we got between Objective-C and Swift with mm-hmm. the NS string and the yeah. string. How much yeah. is core data interoperable with uh, with Swift data? 
That is, I, I still think um, the the way that I've heard it described. Let's put it that way, because I haven't really dove deep into you know what makes it up. Um, it still seems to be somewhat of a swifty macroized layer on top of core data. It's doing a lot of, of things under the scenes, um, using some of the new features such as Swift macros, which are amazing, um, that were introduced this year to easily, uh, get the models that you need into the shape that the underlying, um, existing core data framework already, uh, needs. Um, but there is still, uh, there, there's not, I don't think there's a lot of like that automatic bridging you were talking about. There are some things that work, um, that, that have direct parallels between Swift data and core data right now. Uh, but then there are just some things that, that don't, you know, uh, public cloud kit, for example, is something you still have to fall back on, uh, with core data. And so you have to have a mix. If someone's getting started on an, on a new little project, do you suggest that they learn core data and move to Swift data, or do you suggest mm -hmm. they, they try playing in, in the Swift data world? Really good question. Yeah. I mean, again, it's, I think it's a, what's your end goal, right? How big is the, the project you want to make? If you're exploring, uh, one of the easiest things to do is open up Xcode 15 beta, uh, beta two just came out, uh, yesterday as of the time of this recording. Um, with Vision OS, Yay. by the way, a little side plug there, yeah. Um, but uh, open up a sample iOS app in uh, Xcode 15. Choose Swift Data as the data management option when you start a new project. And just like with Core Data, uh, it gives you sample code for how to deal with persistence uh, using Swift Data. So you get to, to see some of that for free. Um, it has a very basic model, just like the core data sample code did. Um, it has a very basic query, which are super easy now to do uh, for your basic query. Uh, and it shows how you can use them in a project. So that's a really, really great way uh, to see where you're going. And I would also uh, highly recommend uh, the videos at DubDub this year. Uh, they had a great little series on what is Swift data, you know, how to migrate, things like that. It goes over all the, the details. Now, um, Mark and I were talking just before the show about how Swift UI, in theory, it looks really great and things just drop out of their demonstrations very well. And then when you start trying to modify it yourself, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's when things get a little ugly and messy. Is Swift data the same way that the, the, the demonstrations are great, but when you start to do your own playing with it, it starts getting a little bit fairy. Yeah, I think that's where they are right now. Like I said, I think it's it's got that same, oh, I can do everything with, you know, Swift UI than I could with UI kit. Nah, no, nah, you, you really can't. Not right now. They're getting better. You know, they have over the years. But with Swift Data, I think it's the same thing. You know, they've got the basics down uh, this go around. They've got easy model creation. They've got uh, easy queries. They've got easy predicates, uh, which are, uh, again, uh, makeable with Swift macros. Um, they have migration to an extent somewhat uh, easily defined as well if you're migrating between schema versions. Um, but there are some things that I've seen around the, the Twitter and Mastodon verse uh, with people going, oh, you know, I thought I could do this, but I can't. Or like I mentioned earlier with the CloudKit example, there's some things that don't, that aren't quite ready for prime time yet. You still have to have that mix. Um, so there's still, there's still some catching up to do. And I think, you know, knowing Apple and seeing what they've done over the many years um, with SwiftUI and some other things, it's going to be an evolutionary thing. We're going to see improvements year over year. And with the eventual hope that it's going to become on par uh, with, with core data. So if you do want to have your data in a cloud database solution, like whether you're using CloudKit or something else, can you do that with Swift data? Does it work? What, what does and doesn't work right now with regards to that? Right. So out of the box right now, uh, it does work with private CloudKit containers. 
so uh, there's when you're up on CloudKit, there are uh, private CloudKit containers that are tied to your particular app ID, or to your Apple ID, sorry, uh, that keeps your data uh, segregated uh, away from everyone else's. And there is a public database that you can access as well. So think game leaderboards. Right. Okay. Right. Maybe you want to store that data up in CloudKit. Uh, but for other personal information or other settings or things like that that you don't need to be sharing with the other 5 million people who play that game, uh, that they can store that in the private cloud. Uh, and so out of the box, uh, Swift Data can support private CloudKit. Uh, and it will actually do, and this is another nice thing that I've, I've loved that the core data team has been working on over the last several years. It does a lot of that automatically for you. And that is a technical term, automatically. Um, and uh, for example, two years ago, I think, um, they made a great change to uh, the uh, NS... Persistent uh, the cloud container. container class. NS persistent container. The persistent container class, yeah. Um, that basically wrapped up all the things that they saw people doing to enable iCloud sync and, and communications and wrapped it into one very nice class that did everything for you. Uh, and so they've carried that philosophy a little bit over, I think, to Swift Data when it comes to managing the cloud, as long as you're working with that private portion of uh, CloudKit. If you want to go. So that lets us like make apps that if I do something in this app on a, on a phone, then I'll yeah. see it reflected on my iPad, on my Mac, anywhere that that app exists. Right. It keeps right. my so it'll, data it'll handle in sync the across yeah. different devices that I'm logged into with my Apple ID. What if I want. That's right to have other users work on something with me though, then is that when the public container is needed? Yeah, that, that's when things get a little, a little more hairy. And so, you know, that's when you have the fallback to CloudKit. They, they can work together. They are, um, I think with the way that just, they've got the, the interfaces to Swift data defined right now, they're, they're limited to an extent, um, but they're not exclusive to each other. They're not uh, perpendicular to each other. Uh, so you can have your Swift data definitions uh, for the different contexts you want to work with uh, from that scale. Uh, but then when you need to switch to something uh, that needs some of the power of core data, like working with these um, uh, these public CloudKit containers, uh, you can have another context set up that handles the communication uh, between your app and that public container. Uh, and it, you know, it all works out fine from what I've, I've heard. Um, so that's their plan for now. My, like I said, my guess is that as it evolves, they will absorb that in uh, to the, you know, the set of, of macros or the set of, of classes that they have to support uh, Swift data property wrappers and the such um, to make it very easy. You know, I can, I can clearly see something like a macro being added to a class or a property wrapper added later on that just says public cloud, you know, and boom, you're, you're there. Um, but that is, you know, that's not happening this year, but I can definitely see it in years to come. So let's just go for brass tacks here. Is it ready for prime time or do you think it still needs to bake a year or two? Um, Yes, I'm coming back to that answer a lot, right? Um, so again, it, it, you know, as with many things in life, uh, the answer is it depends, right? So uh, depending on what you want to do, depending on how complex your data model is, uh, depending on how complex your queries are, and whether you how interactive you might want to be with your app in terms of getting data and sorting data and filtering data, it very well could be. Um, it, it does allow you to spin up uh, a persistence layer in your app way quicker than what it was before, um, since a lot of it has been pulled back into the source code. And uh, core data, you had your schema editor that you would use to build uh, what the schema of your database looked like. That's no longer necessary. So is that just totally gone? You don't need it at all anymore? If you're doing Swift data, you don't need it. 
because it is like in Swift UI, um, you know, kind of going away from, from storyboards and from interface builder, uh, sort of the same analogy. They're moving away from this extra UI and schema editor and saying, I can see everything in your model as long as you tag at model. Uh, that, that, that Swift macro on top of it, it has everything it needs. It, it does the translations. You can set other uh, property wrappers on certain things to help define relationships. Um, but if your model is sufficiently, oh, let's say not complex, you know, it works. Um, if you have a much more complicated underlying data structure um, that, say, has other things like dependencies for the public cloud, it can get you there partially, I think. I think you can still establish some of those those basic ideas. Um, but again, depending on what you want to do with it, people that are very, very experienced with working with uh, core data and hit sort of full boat of, of possibilities may look at it and go, you know, I, I, I want to wait a year. You know, a lot of people don't go zeroth generation or first generation Apple products. This is, you know, a software analogy, right? Um, so again, it, it depends. I think it's the way of the future. They're pushing hard on Swift macros. They pushed hard on property wrappers for years now. Um, Swift macros seem to be the very new shiny in terms of bits that have come out. Um, it's getting a lot of attention. And I think they're going to continue to see ways to fold those core data components into Swift macros down the road. So. Yeah, I think it's an inevitable thing. Okay, and just in in case somebody's listening who didn't hear about Swift macros in mm. um, WWDC, how would you explain those, and why do we need to keep saying that in the context of Swift data? Yeah, so um, one of the things that uh, Swift macros can do for you is uh, essentially add code at compile time uh, to the classes uh, and uh, structs that you make. And that is really beneficial for core data because uh, for your models now, you really just say what the properties are. And when you throw at model on top of that class, that macro expands into a bunch of other code that Swift data uses in order to properly set up the model underneath. So you went from using your schema editor to make things and making sure that the one-to-many relationships were all correct and yada, yada, yada. And now you've simplified things to, you know, five or six lines uh, of code in a file to define your entitled model for a class and relationships that it has with other classes. And that's all you have to do. It makes it dirt simple now. There's a way to like click on app model and expand it and see what that yeah. macro stands for. That's exactly right. So if you're in Xcode 15 uh, beta or above, uh, you right click on app macro and you can see what code it is adding in there to enable uh, Swift data to see that model as a fully functioning uh, Swift data model that it can use to persist your data. It looks ridiculously easy. Like, you know, yeah, it, it is, it is ridiculously, it is ridiculous. there was, I, I think you had sent a video uh, at W when we were talking about WWGC, maybe at the, the, the thing that night, um, someone has sat down and put together a little data model and walked through and made a video in eight minutes. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, and kind crazy. of explaining what they were doing. If they weren't explaining what they were doing, they could have made the model and you know, made the little project in two minutes. Yeah, and put everything together. Uh, and Swift Macros was a huge part of that because all that boilerplate that you typically have to have in order to set things up, and I include the schema editor, honestly, in the boilerplate, um, all that's gone now. So. so does Swift data lend itself to unit testing? Um, I, I think so still. Um, just like with core data, um, there is the ability to make a, um, uh, you know, in, in core data, we had the persistence.swift file. And that was a file that was made with, uh, when you started a core data project, 
that would basically set up a in-memory context for your uh, core data uh, struct or core data uh, schemas that you had. The benefit of that was being able to use it in SwiftUI previews. Uh, and so you could have dummy data populating those entries in your SwiftUI previews and see how it really looked. Um, there is a still a way to do that with Swift data. You can set up those in-memory sort of contexts so you can give um, you can give uh, the SwiftUI views the values they need. You can call that particular context, uh, and the means that you can also uh, use that in your unit testing. So if you want to set up something that is uh, in memory that your unit testing, you can just go and grab, kind of create on the fly, and then um, and then using your unit testing, yeah, you can do that. And what would somebody look up to learn more about that? Like how one mocks data for Swift data? Oh, that's a really good question. I'm trying to think. I believe, and I'll maybe I'll, I'll look this up, uh, and we can add it to notes. Maybe if, if we have uh, some later, I think it's in one of the videos okay. uh, at WWDC. Um, but I can try to find out where I remember seeing that. But you you can definitely you can definitely still do that sort of in memory uh, context. That's cool. So we now yeah. have um, at queries. Yeah. One of the things that. I've done in my personal app using core data is that I've got dynamic queries yeah. based on selections, buttons, etc. Yep. How dynamic is an at query? From what I can tell, not much. Uh, mm. And this is another one of those, I think, growing pains that people might have. Um, the the stuff that they introduced in the last few years in core data for sort of dynamically um, created fetch requests and and predicates uh, has been really nice. That's the thing that's allowed you to uh, sort of make those on the fly uh, based on on user inputs. Um, from what I can tell, I think the way that you would do it now is to have multiple queries defined uh, with different attributes. So you can still say, I want to sort it descending or I want to sort it descending. Actually, I think they're forward and backward now, which is an interesting syntactical choice. Um, but you can define different queries that you can then, you know, pull that particular set of data from. Uh, but from what I've seen, I do not think there's a way to dynamically change those queries. Yes. So you'd have to, so you'd like set up like maybe a giant switch statement with all the possible queries that could possibly come out of this. May, and then maybe, and then yeah. in your logic, like choose one of those based on what the user has done, as opposed to building the yeah. query as they're doing what right. they're doing. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. From, from what I can tell, because it is a, um, Query is a property wrapper, which uh, fetch, uh, fetch request was as well. Um, but I do not think they've carried over that sort of dynamic creation capability that they introduced for fetch request with query yet. I could be wrong for listeners. If you're out there and you notice that I'm wrong, please let us know. Uh, but from what I've seen, yeah, they, they do not have uh, that feature yet. And I just have to interject. I want to give a shout out to so. I typically, one of my roles here is to do the research and help come up with questions that we ask our experts. And uh, this time I saw a fellow podcaster prepping for her excellent podcast. Um, Michaela Karen and Paul Hudson have a, a podcast, Swift Over Coffee. And when she was saying she's prepping for hers, I was like, hey, I'm prepping for mine. We're going to talk about Swift data. Um, what do you want to know about it? So I want to give a shout out to Michaela because she came up with some of these uh, juicier questions. Yeah. Now, thanks, Michaela. Thank you so much, Michaela. Now, I haven't gotten to ask this question a lot because we haven't been talking about new technologies on the show that much this season. But mm. as an expert and somebody who has gone through the pains of teaching core data, mm. what they get right in Swift data? Uh, a lot, I think. Um, I don't think it would have been possible without macros, uh, the Swift macros that came out. Um, I've sort of had a feeling and we actually kind of pursued this a bit, uh, 
here comes a plug in the real world uh, iOS uh, by tutorials book um, where we could almost do this with what they had with property wrappers and the such. We could almost get there um, because all the possible connections, all the, all the pieces were there. It was just a question of how to connect them, right? Um, Swift macros really connected all the dots together. Um, I think what a lot of people just like with UI development, what they want to be able to do is go in and do things quick and do things iteratively and do things without having to really worry about the guts of what's going on if they don't want it. And I think Swift data really helps with that because like I said, you know, a couple minutes to get your model together for a class. Great. You know, that's more time you can spend doing other stuff. Um, again, it's evolutionary. It's, you know, it's not there yet, but I think that's very Apple. That's just how they do things nowadays. Uh, they have been for years. Um, so I think they got a lot of things right. Um, I, I think they've, uh, by introducing that simplicity and, and taking a lot of the, the cruft out of the way, um, I think it, it becomes a lot more appealing to use Swift data and the internal frameworks for data persistence on iOS, uh, as opposed to having to go into a third-party library and using that instead, which some people do. They don't like core data. Uh, they don't like CloudKit. And so they go and, uh, and do other things. Swift data lowers that hurdle. All right, now here's the big one. And this is going to give Mark a little time to think about it for widgets. What's on your wish list, Josh? <sighs> um, for Swift Data in particular, yeah, I mean, I think it would have to be, um, it would have to be the push towards parity. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, the the more they can do every year with bringing it closer to what Core Data can do, um, the quicker it gets adopted. Right. A uh, few interesting caveats that I've seen. Um, it does not work in Vision OS, uh, which is very odd. You have to use core data. Huh. Uh, so, yeah, with it, we're not sure. Yeah, not sure whether that is a Vision OS just literally got out of the oven, you know, yesterday uh, and they haven't really kind of integrated all the new shiny from everywhere else yet. Um, but. The, the reports that I'm, I'm seeing around the, the inner tubes uh, says that, yeah, it doesn't work. You have to use core data. Uh, so that's a, definitely on a, on a wish list for a lot of people, I'm sure. Um, yeah, parity, that. Um, and then uh, I think just, you know, keeping it, you know, parity is nice, but then also what else can you do with it? You know, how uh, how can you, uh, add new macros to be able to extend what people already do with core data, which is, you know, kind of crazy with, with some of the things that I've read. Um, can we wrap those up into macros? Can we, um, can other people make macros to plug into Swift data to be able to do things that they need to do? Uh, since Swift macros are importable through Swift package manager. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, continual growth. And then let's get it in all the frameworks. Vision OS needs it. So, Is there anything else about Swift data that you'd like to say at this point? Um, I would say, um, you know, if you're interested, dive in. Yeah, it's, it's a great time. Uh, there is a lot. Of, there are a lot of people using it and trying it out. So the community out there, whether you're on Twitter or Mastodon or, or the various Slack communities or the, uh, sorry, the Kadeco, uh, the chat uh, that we have, uh, there are people out there using it. It's a great time to ask questions. Um, I think it is where Apple is pushing, uh, just as they do with other technologies. They introduce the new stuff and gradually move their way. Um, so that doesn't always work but most of the time that's how they they do things uh so that is where we're going i think that's where we're headed um get in on the ground floor file feedbacks mm. if you see things that you don't like or that you would want to see do that 
now. I'm curious you know, whether you you've really, done that yourself. That was one of my questions for you. Uh, I, I have not. Uh, I haven't, uh, you know, really dove in enough to see where things, you know, are breaking to the point where I would want to go. Yeah, that's that's really bad. Um, but if you are a person who uses core data and you want to try out Swift data and you are missing something that is paramount to you that you really think should go into this first iteration, file feedbacks. Uh, feedback assistant on your uh, back uh, is a great place to do it. And um, it will go in, they'll get, you'll get a radar for it, and, uh, and hopefully it will get some attention at Apple. Um, but it's easier to get things in like that now in the beta process when they're very Good early point. on as opposed to right before Xcode and iOS and everything drops later in the, this year. So, yeah, if you're interested, dive in. It's a great time. It's a new technology. Uh, everyone loves the new shiny bits. And, uh, and go ahead and give it a try. As Paul Hudson says, the best time to, uh, to learn a new technology is when it's released. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. I did have one more question about Swift data and migration. Like if you have a, a project that's using core data now, how does the yeah. migration work? And are there, is there, is there like automated stuff? Is there something you can click now changes uh, to Swift data? Well, uh, no, well, you know, there is, excuse me one second. I'm going to look at something. <laughs> um, there is, uh, I do remember having a, seeing a button to do that in Xcode. Um, but let me, let me tell you sort of the manual way, which is pretty easy. Um, you watch too many videos over WWDC week and they all blend together. Mm -hmm. It's really a, both a glorious and horrible thing at the same time. Um, the nice thing about how easy Swift macros makes it to work with Swift data is that, um, as long as you can make sure that you have your, uh, your entities, your classes defined in code, you throw an app model on top of there figure out what queries you want to do uh you're replacing your all your fetch requests or your complicated fetch requests with that query makes it a whole lot easier um you can delete your schema file after that and um and it's really easy to get going you obviously you have to work on uh kind of retooling the predicates but they're easy now uh it's a swift macro that takes in a closure uh, so that's pretty easy to define, probably very similar to what you were doing in the first place when you were working with core data, it's just moving it over to the, the new, uh, structure of things. Um, there is, uh, I will plug it again at WWDC. There is a great migrate to Swift data video, uh, that walks you through some of this and they take a project that is in core data and very quickly kind of undo it and, and apply Swift data to it. And it works like a charm. I want to go back and comment about the uh, filing feedback. Um, this is something I, I feel very strongly about. If you find something that, that is bothering you, talk to your colleagues, have them file. And it's always file mm -hmm. early, file often. The more feedback that Apple gets, the more likely mm -hmm. they are to take knowledge of it, uh, take notice of yep. it. And um, For sure. again, I, I'm a great proponent of get your team to find one of their C, their, their extra servers to set up CI/CD with the betas, the early betas, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. if they break you, early is the best time to tell Apple you've broken us and we need to be fixed. If you wait until the golden master, Apple's not going to make any major changes for several revisions, and mm -hmm. you are going to be stuck in the muck uh, if yep. you haven't talked to them. So I feel very strongly file feedback, um, even if it's minor and it's something you think they'll ignore, file the feedback. Mark, we haven't forgotten about you. Oh, that's fine. Uh, I was wondering if I could ask Josh a question. Oh, please. Oh, sure. That's with data. Uh, yeah. I don't think you touched on this and all of the 
many questions that you've answered so far, but I was curious, uh, as far as Swift data is concerned, clearly it's very well paired with Swift UI. So mm. Swift UI and Swift data kind of work hand in hand. If you are a developer on an app or just a developer of the ilk who, uh, whose strong opinion is, well, I can't do everything I really want to do with Swift UI yet, and I need to get closer to bare metal and uh, write UI kit or write app kit uh, mm -hmm. or something that's in a layer under Swift UI. Good question. Uh, how well does Swift data pair with, say, UI kit? Or is the integration possible? Uh, is, it, is there an alternate kind of integration you'd employ? to pair with a UI kit app versus a Swift UI app. Uh, there is, you can definitely do it. Um, again, I'm going to link over to Xcode while I have it up and running. Um, I'm pretty sure that if I, uh, if I do a storyboard, which is UI kit. Uh, oh, interesting. Okay. Glad I checked. So if you are, um, if you choose Storyboard, which is the non-Swift UI version uh, of the interface option when you make a new app in Xcode 15, uh, storage either becomes none or core data. Uh, so mm. there is seemingly a very strong connection between Swift UI and mm. Swift data. Again, here's my shocked face. You know, this is where they've been pushing SwiftUI for a, you know, is my shock. Um, they've been pushing to SwiftUI for, you know, quite a long time, not necessarily leaving UIKit in the dust. There's still a lot of stuff that, you know, gets updated for UIKit over the years. But again, that's been their momentum. You know, uh, I think they're picking up Swift data along the way as they, as they move. Um, so, uh, there is, uh, now that's again, also saying, I will say this, um, that is default settings and opening a new app in Xcode. Right. Uh, right. I have yeah. a vague recollection of seeing things that if you were to do this in UI kit, here's how you would set this thing up. Mm. Um, I cannot remember where they are right now. Again, like I said. WWDC week is horrible for memory. Um, but I'm, I want to say there is a possibility uh, that you can do it. You may have to kind of go a little bit more, like you said, closer to the metal in terms of what it's doing. You know, Swift, uh, Swift data is taking advantage of the new observable uh, property wrappers uh, that are out there. Property wrappers or macros? I can't remember. Um, but it's sort of the next version of combine and some of the backups for uh, behind the scenes stuff in Swift UI. Uh, you may be able to interface with some of uh, those lower level features, but uh, maybe not. So good something question. to be determined. That's really a really good question. question. Yeah, good question. Yeah. UI kit app developers, if you, if you can't find an escape hatch to use Swift data, but you want to from your UI kit app, file a feedback now. Yeah. Yeah. And Josh, I do want to say, like you've you've said, like oh, it's hard to keep everything straight. But in Josh wrote an excellent article, like basically immediately after these videos went live during WWDC week, walking us through a, a recipe example of how you'd get started with Swift data. Yeah. And the links to every one of the videos that you do want to go back and watch are in your excellent article, and we'll have that article linked right. in the show notes. Josh, thanks, and of course, we invite you to stay in Kibitz as we talk to Mark yeah. about widgets. So, Mark... Or should I say Dr. Powell? Please <laughs> <You> say Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just start with the basics. What is a widget? Where do we, where do we see them? Yeah, where do we see widgets? So uh, let me take you on a brief historical tour of widgets and widget-like things. 
uh, in the ecosystem. Uh, in the before times, before widgets were capital W widgets, uh, there was a thing that you could write that was a companion to an iOS app called a today extension. And you would get to the today widgets. They called them widgets, but they were today widgets specifically. Uh, you would write them in an extension that was in your project alongside the main app. And from the home screen, if you swiped uh, to reveal what was on the left of the home screen, you would see any today widgets. Uh, and you can still, I think, do this. Uh, I don't think they've removed the feature entirely yet. Uh, so, so you can still do this, uh, and you know, time will tell whether these become ultimately deprecated completely. Uh, but those those were the little mini app views that you could offer, uh, very glanceable. You had to swipe, you know, to see them, uh, and you could see in a, in a small view a, a little bit of information uh, with perhaps some limited interactivity as well, like buttons you could press, for example. Uh, that would uh, allow you to do things uh, in in the in your app, uh, and since then, uh, for iOS 15, they became they became capital W widgets. Uh, so instead of writing the today extension that would be a companion to your app, now you have a widget extension where you write the code that will be in a little mini view that can accompany your app. It's entirely optional, right? You can have, you can certainly have an app with no widgets, uh, but if you write a widget for your app, then uh, the end user has the option to drop that widget on their home screen uh, in the first iteration. So in 15, you could drop widgets uh, of, I think, three different sizes, small, medium, large, uh, onto your home screen. The, the the choice for the user is how much of your precious home screen real estate do you want to sacrifice to offer a quick glanceable view of something in this app that I love so much? Uh, do I want the small one? Do I want the big one? Because I need room for my icons too, so I can launch them <laughs> for all my other apps that I love so much. Uh, so that's that's where widgets uh, originally live. Uh, it is strictly on the home screen, uh, and then came. Uh, iOS, iPad iOS 16. Because uh, in 15, you, you couldn't have them on the iPad at all. It was an iPhone-only feature. With 16, they came to the iPad home screen as well. So same sort of thing as with the iPhone. Drop them on the home screen. Get little mini views that show you something uh, from the app you have installed. Uh, but then with iOS 16, there was the lock screen. And so for the lock screen, you have uh, versions of a widget that can live there, but they look slightly different. So uh, if, you, if you make a widget compatible with the lock screen, then it has that sort of desaturated, uh, almost grayscale appearance. Like a watch complication, I think. Yes, very similar. And now, and now watch complications are going to uh, taking advantage of the widget uh, framework as well. So writing writing for complications has been now kind of migrated into writing widget like things as well. Uh, things are things are very much converging. And so iPhone lock screen, iPhone home screen, you find them in now both places. Uh, come to seventeen. So iOS seventeen. That's where it gets super interesting because lots of additions across multiple platforms. So on the iPhone, what's new? A uh, couple things. Uh, widgets can now be more interactive. Uh, it's not like they couldn't be interactive before at all, but before it was limited to you tapped somewhere on the widget and something would happen. Um, for a small widget, tapping launches the app. For a larger widget, you can actually divide up the widget into different touch areas, different touch zones, and say, if I tap if I tap on this part, I'll go to this part of the app, or if I tap on that part, I'll go to a different part of the app, and you can program that. Well, you could program like the small widget to deep link into a certain part of the app, because you helped me do that. <laughs> That's right, yeah. too. Yeah, but you, can, but you can only do that one yeah. thing. So if it's a small widget, you tap it, activate one deep link, it does one thing, 
there couldn't be a variable behavior mm. then uh, as you could with the larger widgets. Uh, so, so there was that. Uh, so interaction uh, is new now, and we'll get more into that specifically, like what does that mean? Uh, so now, but now, essentially now you can have certain control like buttons and toggles that can invoke code from a widget and run things in your app. Uh, and now the iPhone has a new standby mode as well. And so widgets, when you write a widget, they can adapt to that. So all the foreground elements of your widget kind of get a little bigger, uh, at least the important ones, expand to take up the use of the space. Uh, and now you can you know, take advantage of writing that code for the standby mode uh, on the iPhone as well. So that's new. Now on the iPad, you can also have widgets on that lock screen. So same ad adaptation you did for the iPhone, you can now apply that to the iPad. Uh, for the watch, uh, now that watch OS 10 is you know, in, in many ways, very, very different. Uh, one of the main user experience enhancements that you have with watchOS 10 is before watchOS 10, uh, if you're looking at your watch face and you scroll the scroll wheel, nothing would happen. Mm. With watchOS 10, now you're looking your, at your watch face and you scroll the digital crown up, you get this thing called a smart stack and it has widgets in it. So now you can put your widgets on your Apple Watch and uh, the, smart the smart stack will attempt to arrange all the widgets from all the apps you have installed on your watch in an order that makes the most sense. So timely things would be on the top or be reorganized and shuffled to appear on the top at the proper times, the most opportune times. Uh, so now we have that. And then uh, last but certainly not least, we can run them on the Mac OS desktop now in Sonoma. So uh, if you have a widget you've written for an iPhone app, even if you don't have a Mac app implemented, you can put an iPhone widget on the Mac desktop. Huh. Uh, same, yeah, same, uh, yeah, same Apple ID on both devices and all that of course, apply, but uh, it's possible to have iPhone widgets placed on your Mac desktop, even though there's not a Mac app. So that's pretty awesome. Mac OS widgets have taken a very long and windful route to come to back say, to where we are today. Didn't lowercase w widgets used to exist on OS ten? Yeah, yeah. It's like, and sort of used a to side be, screen that you could drag yeah, onto the yeah. screen. And, yep. But they were more like mini apps than widgets attached to an application. Like, I'm not... I'm not sure about it yet from a user perspective, but from a developer perspective, if you've got something you've already written for an iOS app that then can live on Mac and work like this, it's interesting to think like, okay, so what are the use cases? What can we do that's, that's really cool and worthwhile with all this? Yeah, well, a bunch of developers uh, are already taking advantage of some of the new capabilities uh, to create interactive widgets. Uh, just a few of them like happen to follow on social. Uh, made, a, made a small list. Uh, so I saw P. Rambo, he posted uh, an example of a widget that builds a character avatar. Uh, so you have a, a rendering of your avatar, a representation of the person or a character, and uh, a, a, scroll, a, a scrollable area that has a selection of different kinds of things you can change on the avatar, like hair, face, clothes, what have you, uh, and uh, a column of buttons that had all the options for all the different eyes, different hairs, different things that you want to set. Uh, so one, one, one button above and below the scroll bar to give it the uh, utility of being scrollable, uh, even though there isn't a scroll control that you can add to a widget that would uh, provide interaction directly uh, and he constructed buttons in the right arrangement in order to produce that effect. Uh, That's very and pleasing. So you, you know, change, yeah, we so should that link to really some cool. of this too uh, in the show notes because that's fun. Yeah, I have some Mastodon links uh, we can include in the show notes, so let's absolutely do that and have people see 
what people already had fun doing. Uh, he was, he, he was, he posted that, but also joked kind of tongue in cheek. Let's see who can win the race of getting rejected for a map store review first, uh, <laughs> by subverting using widgets in ways that they don't approve. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Tell us more about like, what are the limits on interactive widgets? What can you do and what can't you do? So, yeah, as we said before, uh, before 17 interaction is tap and launch the mm-hmm. app with a URL to do something. Uh, so now you can make Swift UI buttons and Swift UI toggles, because uh, all widget coding is Swift UI. Uh, there, there is no other option. Uh, so buttons and toggles get to run code. Uh, so as you're laying out your view, that comprises your widgets. Uh, if you want your button to be active, then you can have it perform an action, or if you want your toggle to perform an action on a change of state, then it will perform an action. Uh, performing an action in the context of a widget is very, very different than what you need to do to, uh, if you were writing a Swift Drive view for the app itself. Because changes to the app view in an app are driven by state. So right. you have an add state property wrapper. You make a change to that, view responds. With widgets, it's all about making changes to timeline entries. Mm. Everything in a widget is driven by a timeline. Mm-hmm. So the timeline entry takes the place of state in this context. Uh, a widget will render itself once as an initial appearance and as timeline entries occur over time, they will adapt and re-render. Well, the, the rendering can happen well in advance if the system chooses to do that, but that's that's sort of the pipeline that's behind widgets. You, you express timeline entries to represent these are the time points when I want the widget to change how it is rendered. And behind the scenes, when the, when the system receives that full timeline and the code that expresses your view, it behind the scenes renders all of the little view snippets and stores them somewhere so that the home screen can pull them up at the right time and show you what does this widget look like over a function of time. And so instead of state, timeline entries. Uh, and so now it's possible for buttons and toggles to uh, create an immediate mode timeline entry change. So uh, with, with widgets, when, when you create the timeline, you set up this chain of events and there are some limitations and constraints around that, right? Like you can't have a timeline that necessarily will change the appearance of a widget every single second. Um, Because if you give the system too many of those, there's a budget, and if you run out, then the system will just stop rendering uh, the widget and not honor them past a certain point. Uh, But interactions provide timeline entry changes which are guaranteed to be immediate. So that's pretty cool. Uh, I mean, and to make it interactive, of course, for the user, they kind of needed to do that. Uh, so immediately, uh, when you perform the action, that will cause the widget to react and create a new rendering. Uh, and now, instead of just you know individual frames that change over time, they also provided the capability for you to express how you would like those changes to be animated, which makes them even more responsive and interesting. So now if you have a widget showing uh, a count of something and the count may be going up or maybe going down, uh, in one of the excellent WWDC talks about uh, making making widgets live, I think is uh, the title along those lines and we'll link to that in the notes. Uh, the the animation can apply to text and show uh, the a, a numeric value changing going up or down uh, or other text you know, changing whether it's a cross-state animation and you have lots of ways that you can control how you want that animation to occur. So let's let's talk about the relationship of the widget to the app. How are they related? How do they work together? Exchange data, etc. Yeah, totally. So 
when you write a widget, you're writing an app extension. So it's sort of a sub-project that is a sibling of your main app project. Uh, you can... Uh, you can have them share code if you want, because when you create the widget extension, it is its own run target in Xcode. Uh, so if you have some Swift code that you want to share between your main app and your widget, uh, you can go to that Swift file and say, I will include this in the app. It's already included in the app. I also want to include it in the widget, and then that'll become compiled and linked into the widget as well. Uh, so that's that makes it pretty straightforward for you to be able to share code. Uh, if you want to share data, that gets a little more interesting. This is an extra step that you have to include in your project configuration in order to share data, which is by creation of an app group. So in your project, uh, when you have an app and any kind of extensions that live alongside your app, uh, in order for those your app and its app extension uh, to share data, whether it's files, whether it's core data, uh, what have you, uh, it's uh, the, the, the mainstream way to accomplish that is to create an app group, which is a container for data that both the widget and the main app share. Uh, and when you, uh, if you, if your app and your widget want to read from the same file, like if you have like a JSON data file that you want to read or something like that, uh, you put that in the share container and now it's readable, uh, from either the, the app or the widget extension. Uh, same thing for core data. If you want to build a core data container, uh, in the shared container, then whatever data you write in there from your main app is readable, queryable from the widget uh, or vice versa. Nice. But you always have to have, you can't just have a widget. You have to have an app. That's true now. Uh, and it's, it's always important to qualify these things because last year widgets couldn't be interactive. Uh, so for now, uh, widgets are extensions of apps and thus require an app to be attached to or be a part of as uh, an app bundle that you would ship to the app store. Uh, I'm, I'm certain that you could not simply write a widget and just send that to the app store for consideration for distribution as an app. Uh, it can't be just a widget itself. I think right now uh, that's that, that, that would be, I think, the ultimate constraint that would require that there be an app of any kind. Uh, you could have the fanciest widget in the world, but you at least have to have Hello World as an app. So sort of like the watch extensions used to be app only, and now they are standalone. That's a great example. Uh, what, yeah, because indeed, WatchKit apps, when they were WatchKit, uh, didn't, used to, they used to be an extension, and you needed that iPhone app for it to be a part of. Uh, but they made a break, you know, at, at some point in the evolution of the uh, operating systems and the frameworks that they serve. Uh, and so now you can have an independent Watch app only. Uh, it can just be an independent thing. That's what makes sense. So I want to make sure um, you know, regular listeners will know that I'm like a crummy junior programmer, even at my advanced age. But one of the few things I've done with a lot of help from Mark is write a couple widgets. And one of the many things I found difficult about that was like just continually checking how does this look? How does this look? Figure out where you go in the simulator to see, because I love that instant gratification of like, you do something in Swift UI and ooh, it's so pretty, or oh, wait, why does it look like that? Or why is my whole screen black? <laughs> um, so, but something big has changed now with regards to that. So Mark, what's better about looking at your widgets now? Right, so the they, they've made a lot of great improvements to previews, uh, not the least of which is to make it a macro, like what Josh was referring to uh, when you're talking about uh, Swift data. Now, now instead of uh, you know having to declare an entire struct of preview provider and a lot of boilerplate to put your view in in order to do that, now it is just uh, preview and code. <laughs> Uh, so it's extremely abbreviated, extremely uh, lighter weight. Uh, 
uh, much much less code to specify different kind of variations of what kind of a preview do I want? Do I want uh, you know? Do I, do I want this to be a widget? Do I want it to be uh, dark mode or light mode? Do I want it to be portrait or landscape? Uh, what kind of other like platform variations do I want to explore? Uh, and to be able to, to do that very succinctly. Uh, and for widgets to go along with the interaction that they've made possible, they've really done a number on widget previews as well to help you with animations, among other things. So uh, you can, in a preview, specify for the preview the timeline entries that you want your widget to change through. And under the preview of what your, so, so your, your widget will appear in preview uh, with the first timeline entry, rendering it with whatever data and parameters are a part of that first timeline entry. And then all the other timeline entries that you put after that show up as little uh, thumbnails under the preview, edit, the preview viewer. And if you transition by, cl by clicking the second thumbnail, when you were looking at the first thumbnail, when you click the second thumbnail, the widget will animate. Oh, nice. Through that transition from the first to the second, and then you can click again in the second to the third. And so as you're programming in these changes to your timeline and looking at how the animations are changing its appearance, as it's morphing through all the states in the timeline that it needs to serve, you get that real-time, responsive, uh, almost hot-swapping code experience uh, as you're making your changes and uh, refining how you want the user experience to unfold. If I have iOS 16 widgets, are they going to be okay, or am I going to have to upgrade those for iOS 17? Good question. Glad you asked that. <laughs> Glad you asked that. Whether or not you have a widget in your app right now, you care about the change that they made to uh, this this year's versions of iOS is coming out in the fall because of backgrounds and margins. Mm. So before now, widgets were simply a box that you drew stuff in, in Swift UI, and whatever you drew was clipped to the edges of the box, and that's it. Uh, and depending on where you put the widget, it might, the, the way it was drawn may vary a little bit. Uh, but uh, now it's a different kind of box. Now the box has a foreground and a background, and depending on where that widget shows up, whether it's iPhone or lock screen or standby or watch, the, the background may or may not be there. And if it is there, it has a margin that will constrain whatever you draw in the part of the box that you're used to drawing before. Uh, on the iPhone, that margin is 16 pixels on all sides. So uh, I tried it on one of my widgets and for what I was drawing, I had you know, some text in the center and I had some graphics that were, that were uh, drawing vertical lines uh, down the left and right sides of the screen. Uh, and they were counting on the widget bounds to clip those lines uh, at, at the edges. Uh, but now there's a background. And now the space that you get to draw your stuff in the foreground is in set inside a margin inside the box. And my lines went right up through the background and right down through the background and looked really bad. Uh, so <laughs> immediately I was like, okay, well, I uh, can't count on that anymore and change my code to you know, grab a geometry reader and figure out, okay, what is my viewing area that I can draw in and constrain it to that size of the box. Uh, so that I didn't spoil my background, which was around it. Uh, you can you can tell the system I don't want a background. I want to use the full area. Uh, if you do that, you pay uh, a penalty in some cases where now you you can do that, but it's going to limit maybe where your widget may appear. Uh, you may not be able to make it appear everywhere if you don't have a background. Uh, you can you can tell it uh, to uh, remove the background if it doesn't make sense. Uh, so there's lots of there's lots of games you can play and little environment uh, parameters that they make available to help you figure out how to make your widget look right. 
uh, depending on what are the margins on the platform that I'm running on now, uh, you know, what is the uh, what are, what what is this widget family kind of look like where it's being written, where it's being rendered now so that I can make decisions in code about how to draw it appropriately. I wish we had time to play the entire interview, but if you'd like to see the interview with all the material, watch YouTube for the full video version. Well, Josh, this has been some amazing information on Swift, uh, on uh, Swift data. Mark, uh, the information on widgets was absolutely incredible. I want to thank both of you for being on the show today. Now, typically I'd be talking about the next episode at this point. Um, and I also want to interrupt talking about any episode at this point to thank Suze for stepping up this season. Um, as some of you may be aware, I spent 40 days in the hospital with bad COVID and Suze picked up and did the uh, live casts absolutely fantastically and uh, picked up several of the episodes this season. And I could not do this show without Suze and the research and the amazing work as a co-host. You're very welcome. And something that is would not be apparent to anybody listening or watching in the live cast, I think one of them was apparent because you made a comment. It's one that is apparent to those of us in. But Drew was actually in both of those live casts. Um, he felt like crap and was off camera, but he was there. So we are, this is, this is definitely a team effort all the way. So yeah, Susan's Susan's actually been talking to me at the hospital most of the time since I've recovered. Um, and it's been very heartening to have somebody to, to talk to and to keep me going throughout all of this. Uh, again, Josh, Mark, I want to thank you. Suze, thank you so much. We are not going to talk about the next episode because this is the last episode for season one of the Cadeco podcast. We'll be back in a couple of months with season two with uh, all new guests, all new material. Probably go back to doing some Android, too, because we haven't covered as much of that this season as we should have. Yeah. But on behalf of everybody, including our producers uh, and the entire team at Codeco, I want to thank everybody for listening. We'll see you next season. And Yay, thank you, everyone. That's going to take care of that.